Very nice. Thank you, gentlemen, for blessing us with that today. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And that, that ends the final verses. Uh, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, right? And that plays right into our message as well. If you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Ch- 1, excuse me. It was Acts 2. Luke chapter 1, around verse 34. Now, as I was laying in bed with this <laughs> inflamed toe this week, it was bad. There's two nights, Thursday and Friday night. I, I couldn't really couldn't sleep. The pain was just that bad, intense. A lot better last night, uh, thankfully, and I had a dream. Imagine that. Sitting there two nights not sleeping because of my toe, and then I have a dream last night that I was a kicker for a professional football team. (laughs) So I'm probably going to need an interpreter for that after the service if you see me. But if you will, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 34, we'll pick up where we left off last Sunday. And as we departed last Sunday, we were praising Christ's heavenly reign that was instituted, initiated after his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God. We discovered in verses 32 and 33, the angel telling Mary that her child would be called the Son of the Most High God. And he will have a reign that is eternal. It never ends. So we're celebrating that on Resurrection Sunday. We also then talked at some length about the nature of Christ. He's both the Son of God and He is the Son of Man. Jesus is the God-Man. He is the eternal God who became flesh and dwelt among us. It's an event that we refer to often as the Incarnation of the Word of God. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, meaning John the Baptist, testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. And though John the Baptist, we see, was conceived about six months previous to Christ, the eternal Christ existed before time began. The incarnation was not the beginning of Jesus. We need to realize that Jesus isn't a created being like we are, where we had a beginning in time. God the Son is eternal. And at a point in time, he then became man, Colossians 2.9, uh, for in him, referring to the Christ, for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is God become man. So an obvious question would be, you know, how is that even possible? How could that happen? That's a, that's a pretty reasonable question to ask. So in verse 34, Mary asks that. The virgin asks, saying in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, saying, I am the bondslave of the Lord, she's saying, May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. You know, Mary trusted God. She didn't understand how this conception would occur. Uh, I'm glad she asked this question because it brings a lot of clarity to us in the angel's response. You know, if we only had verses 26 to 33, we, we might be left wondering. Because Mary was betrothed to Joseph. She had then conceive and bear a son whose reign would never end. We, we might be confused into thinking that somehow this might have been a child that they had together. That the conception might have come about naturally after she married Joseph. But that's not the case. Her question in verse 34 validates she is a virgin. She's never known a man. And the reply from the angel makes it very clear. It's indisputable. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. You know, here the the angel didn't rebuke Mary for asking how. And in verse 45, we, we see that Mary believed the angel. She believed what the angel had said. She just wasn't sure how this could happen. She's a virgin, so she says, how? In contrast, when we look back at Zacharias, if you remember back closer to verse 20, he doubted what the angel had said. So he was rebuked. He he wanted a sign confirming what the angel had said, and he was rebuked with a sign of becoming a mute. But there's nothing wrong here with Mary wondering about these mysteries of God's word uh, if she didn't completely understand The problem comes when we question God's word when it has been clearly stated. Exactly how this Holy Spirit overshadowed the virgin and and conceived the child in her womb, I'm not exactly sure. But we know God did it. That's beyond question. It's the very reason the child is called the Son of God. And here we see in this passage, when we look that that, that God is a father, he has a divine son, and God's Holy Spirit is the instrumental cause in this conception. True Christianity worships a triune God. There's one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And the triune God is the object of our worship, the object of Christian worship. And in 1225 A.D., you probably remember a quite well-known hymn by St. Francis of Assisi, which said, All creatures of our God and King. And in the closing line, he says, Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. The Trinitarian Godhead is the object of our praise. 
our worship. It's distinctly Christian. Is there compelling scriptural evidence for it? Absolutely there is. Absolutely. Just one example that we'll see later in Luke chapter 3 when we get there, verse 21, is it at Christ's baptism where it says that Jesus was also baptized and while he, Jesus, was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son in you I am well pleased. So here we see the Father is in heaven, the voice coming from heaven, the angel, uh, the, the, the dove, excuse me, descending upon Jesus, Jesus in the water. All three are present. There's numerous references in the Bible that affirm the Trinity. We'll talk more again later about. But do we ex- understand it completely? Do we understand it entirely? No, not exactly. But we believe it, we accept by faith. How exactly was divinity woven together with human flesh in the virgin's womb? Don't know exactly. Don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit did that, but the Bible is very clear that it was a work of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 1.18, a parallel account of this, it says that now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. He thought that she had been unfaithful. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep as did the angel of uh, Lord commanded him, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So both of these passages very clearly affirm it was a virgin birth. Luke 1, Matthew 1. And here in this passage we observe two very essential cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. The virgin birth and the triune Godhead. God being three in one. They are essential. You can't be a Christian and deny these truths that are clear in Scripture. Do we have to completely understand them? No. We don't have to completely understand them. But neither can we deny them. Because outright rejecting them would be an indication you're not regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Most cults deny, as a matter of fact, One or both of these. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons deny both. They deny the virgin birth. They deny uh, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so I'm sometimes questioned, people ask me about this, these essential cardinal doctrines of which there are a number. If the Trinity, for example, is essential... For the Christian, do we have to explain that? Well, we're out evangelizing people. Good question, right? 
if it's essential? No, I, I don't think so explicitly. I don't, I don't think we do. We share the gospel. That's what we're told to share. And, and when people are saved, they accept implicitly that God the Father has sent his Son to die on the cross. So Father and Son, and the Holy Spirit regenerates their heart. The Holy Spirit is, is active in their lives, convicting them and then regenerating them that Christ is raised. Um, and upon genuinely believing that, born again, you're in a sense already Trinitarian. In a sense, you already believe in God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit has worked in you. And when the doctrine of the Trinity is then explained from Scripture, true Christians will receive the doctrine... Because that's what the scriptures say. And the Holy Spirit is our teacher. So we don't necessarily have, people don't have to understand the Trinity to be saved. But the Trinity is an essential doctrine of the faith. Um, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. These three we see here, they're, they're, they're not explicit in the angel's explanation to Mary. But I would suggest at some level it is implicit to her. Mary accepts the angel's explanation of how this miraculous conception will occur, that God will have a son, that the Holy Spirit will come upon her. And in verse 38, she offers then her response to God's word. She says, Behold, I am the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. You know, Mary, I believe, provides a very helpful illustration of how believers are accountable to respond to the level of revelation that they've been given. Respond to what they know. You know, not every believer in the entire Bible has gotten the same information throughout the ages. Uh, for Adam, his responsibility was initially quite simple. Tend the garden, subdue creation, procreate, right? Don't eat to the forbidden fruit. Pretty simple and straightforward, he failed. That was the instruction to him. Noah, build an ark, right? Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. To Israel, they were to receive and observe the law of Moses, etc. And these differing biblical eras... These different economies of working of the Holy Spirit of God, sometimes they're referred to as dispensations. You might have heard that word at one time or another. Basically, all that says is, is crossing the biblical timeline from Genesis to uh, through Revelation. There are distinctions both in what God has revealed to people and in what God demands of people, what he requires them to do in faith. No, nobody here, for example, nobody here is planning on building an ark, right? No, no. Um, we're not going to sacrifice a red heifer on the Day of Atonement, correct? No, why? Because those were requirements of a previous time, a previous area, era, a previous, we, some of us would call dispensation. And it gets really sticky, folks. This is why I bring this up. It gets really sticky when people don't understand the distinctions between the periods of the Bible. When they don't realize there's any difference between the church and Israel. And Christians, 
they, they can fall into teaching that might insist to them that they need to follow dietary restrictions on what they can eat. Or uh, worship on the Sabbath because it's commanded in the law. And, and they get really legalistic and, and they start pushing others under these same types of restrictions because they don't understand the distinctions. Is there unity in the Bible? Oh, yes. There is unity, but there is also diversity and, dis- and distinctions. I'm a lot like the Trinity. There is unity and there is uh, distinction. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, some of these folks are called Sabbatarians. They want people to observe things of other dispensations that don't directly apply to us. Others refer to themselves as Messianic Christians. We need to be careful of that. Because Paul mostly knew them as Judaizers, right? They were Judaizers. But legalism isn't our topic today. I just wanted you to get a little grasp on on these distinctions throughout the eras of the Bible. And and what I want you to simply realize today is that we have been granted greater revelation as Christians than any of the previous eras have possessed. We have more in our hands now than any of them, those had. Uh, Every believer... Adam, through the newest Christian amongst us today, the newest person here who has come to faith, uh, has been saved by grace through faith. And, and members in each of these eras or dispensations had a responsibility, responsibility to respond in faith to what they knew, to what was revealed to them. Everyone is saved by grace through faith. There's not multiple ways of getting saved in the Bible. And although God has eternally, eternally existed as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the nature of the Trinity wasn't completely disclosed in the Old Testament. Wasn't completely understood. And in verse 35, Mary received then superior revelation about the nature of God than many of the Old Testament saints possessed at their time. And I've got to give her an absolute A-plus for her response. It is astounding. The way she responded in faith in verse 38, Behold, I'm a bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. How often do you hear that today? She receives the word of God through the angel with joy and with gladness. She probably realizes that this pregnancy is going to cause a real problem Uh, with her betrothal to Joseph. It's not going to be a good situation. Some some things are going to have to be explained. But she nonetheless, she trusts God at His word. She believes. And throughout this gospel, we're going to find that Luke elevates women in a way that is previously unrecognized in that culture. Women are lifted high, and this young virgin Mary, perhaps 13 to 15 years old, she's an astonishing example of obedience that we should not quickly overlook. We tend to quickly dismiss Mary very often in our theological backgrounds. We shouldn't overlook her obedience. Uh, in In his book, The Words and Works of Jesus Christ, Dallas Seminary professor uh, Dwight Pentecost um, he, he's really known, he's very renowned for uh, the harmonizing of the Gospels. He, he taught a class at Dallas Seminary called The Life of Christ. He's, he's passed away now, but, but he's done an excellent work of harmonizing the Gospels together. 
and teaching of the life of Christ. And in his book, he quotes a, an early 20th century writer named J.W. Shepherd in his own work simply titled, The Christ. And Shepherd says this about Mary. In simple, beautiful faith and submission, she presented herself to the Lord, his slave, to do with her according to his will, whatever might be the disgrace, the slander, the ill repute, or even death to her. Unfaithfulness in the betrothed was punished with the mutilating death by stoning. But she was willing to give up Joseph and even suffer the mutilation of a horrible death if need be. Such a faith was the rarest. Unquote. We could ask ourselves, how often do we read or possibly hear through audio available today exhortations directly from Scripture, clear in Scripture, and yet we fail to heed. We fail to respond. And instead of immediately responding, we immediately weigh the cost of obedience. Much of the time, regarding very lesser demands than than what we're asked of this young Virgin Mary. Mary is exemplifying a spirit-filled life, which I told you previously we'll be discussing in some depth in these opening chapters of Luke. The Holy Spirit plays a very prominent role. And we're going to look look at what that spirit-filled life looks like. What does it mean to be spirit-filled? For one thing today, it's joyful obedience of God's Word. The spirit-filled life, irrespective of penalty... It involves obedience to God's word when we know it and when we see it, when God has revealed to us and we understand it. There there is a joyful obedience. And when the angel informs Mary in verse 6 about her relative Elizabeth, who now is six months pregnant, as we we discussed, she's got John the Baptist uh, in her womb. In, In verse 39, we see that she immediately rushes off. It says that she hurries off to the hill country in Judah to encourage Elizabeth. You know, I I imagine with this revelation she has that she's singing praises all the way. And how do I know that? Well, next week we're going to look at the Magnificat. Her her song of praise that, that she offers to the Lord. And though her future is uncertain, Mary rejoices, she sings praises. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And she, she, she has an obedient response as a bondservant to God's will, regardless of what the consequences are going to be. Regardless of what persecution she might face. And that is what the Spirit-filled life should look like for all of us. When writing the church in Philippi from prison, Paul is writing the church... And he urges those Christians to persevere even amongst uncertainty, even amongst opposition. And he says to them, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Right? Philippians 1.21 And then Paul tells them, Don't be alarmed. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Right? Suffering, you might ask, like, I thought Philippians was all about rejoicing. 
Paul says, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice, right? Exactly. Rejoicing in obedience in the face of suffering for Christ. This is exactly what Mary is willing to do, to rejoice in obedience, even while facing the suffering that she might uh, endure for the sake of Christ. Really now, with, with the child conceived, for her to live as Christ, to die as gain, if that is what God would so will. She's a wonderful model of, of rejoicing, a wonderful model of obedience. That is a Spirit-filled life. It's, it's a facet of the Spirit-filled life. And Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, talking about the spiritual life here, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, there we have the incarnation, right? Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's where the obedience led Christ to death on a cross. And I can't imagine that attitude that, that we're seeing here in our text today of Christ and what Paul's suggesting of others, uh, but especially for Christ, that part of it wasn't uh, part of Christ's suffering through that, that he wasn't encouraged by his own mother in obedience. If she was willing to obey that early on in life, I can imagine that as he had that trial and as he went to the cross, as he was going to endure the suffering, remember that, that he was sweating as of drops of blood. The stress was so great in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I can imagine that the obedience of Mary surely encouraged him in his time of trial, even to the point of death on a cross. We have to ponder even if our own fellowship amongst us here, the fellowship in the Spirit, as Paul refers to it, that encouragement that comes from being in the same mind, unified in the Spirit, united to one another, intent on one purpose. Sometimes we refer to that as we preach Christ. And, and we have this high calling to be humble, to regard one another as more important than ourselves. More important. And we're, we're not merely to look out to our own personal interests. It says, but also for the interests of others, because this is the attitude of Christ. This is what we see in the life of Christ. So Mary responded appropriately. Her immediate concern was her elderly relative Elizabeth, who she's been told now your, your elderly relative Elizabeth is with child. Six months along. 
So, so Mary here is saying, oh, I wonder if she's okay. I wonder if everything's all right in her household. She's quite old. Let me stay with her for a while. Let me make sure everything is okay with her and encourage her. Because Mary's first concern wasn't her self-preservation. Her response to the angel's word through, uh, of the Lord uh, given through the angel was to obey. It wasn't self-preservation first. Now she's in a hurry to go look out for Elizabeth. Something that we need to be very sensitive to as a church. And I don't think we as Americans always do a great job of this, looking out for one another. And what I think we're observing here at the beginning of Luke in these opening chapters and right here in these verses it is at least in part this initial outpouring of God's Spirit. This, this Spirit promised by the prophet Joel. Let me explain. We're going to see more of this outpouring and this being filled of the Spirit next week, filled with the Spirit, when, when this baby leaps as, as Elizabeth then cries out and prophesies in verse 41. But so that we don't add on a whole additional bag of of, of worms to unpack today, let me wrap up by explaining uh, why I read Acts chapter 2 earlier. The prophecy by Joel as applied by Peter. Because, because there's been a whole lot of ink spilled over that passage. The outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The, the day is appropriately identified as the birth of the church. I completely agree with that assertion. Jesus said to Peter, Upon this rock, meaning the profession that Peter gave of him being the Christ, upon this rock, I will build my church. So the church is surely portrayed as future when Jesus addresses those disciples. Old Testament Israel is not the church. The church is not Old Testament Israel. There is a distinction. Though there are similarities, there is a distinction. And there's a clear distinction between the two in Scripture. There's a vivid distinction concerning the expectations of Israel versus those of us today. But when we discern the activity of the Holy Spirit, we have to admit, folks, the lines aren't quite as clear. They are not quite as clear. They're not quite as distinct. First, let me acknowledge, admittedly, that Jesus said in John 7:37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Then Jesus spoke, this Jesus spoke of the spirit whom, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Spirit was not yet given, and, and most theologians that would be similar in our camp believe this giving of the Spirit occurred on the day of Pentecost. And I agree with that. I agree wholeheartedly with that. Regarding a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a permanent taking up residence of believers in this dispensation, the Holy Spirit was first given in that manner at Pentecost. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't active before Pentecost. I don't see how you can come to that conclusion in Scripture. When Peter preaches the prophecy of Joel on the day of Pentecost, he says in Acts 2.16, 
And it shall be in the last days, God says that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Prophesy just means to speak for the Lord, speak forth His Word. And, and you see in the Old Testament that prophesying or speaking for God was very limited to specific individuals that were identified as prophets, right? Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, you had the prophets in the Old Testament. Very specific individuals. But Joel here predicts a time called the last days when prophesying is going to be greatly expanded. He actually says the Spirit will will pour forth on all mankind. Don't worry there. Actually, a better interpretation would be on all flesh. It will be poured out on all flesh. That doesn't mean that all mankind, every man, every man and woman shall prophesy. Instead, it means that many different types of people will prophesy. It will be poured out on all types of flesh. This is understood through the context that is given. Your sons, your daughters, young, old, slave, free, men and women alike, when the Spirit is poured out in these last days, Joel's, is indica- Joel's indicating it's not only going to be Daniel and people like Daniel who had visions and dreams. Many will receive revelations from God. Even common folks will receive revelations from God. Zacharias, Mary, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, and numerous others we are going to see are going to have visions and dreams. They're going to prophesy even before the day of Pentecost. If this, is, if, if this represents things accurately, which I believe it does, the Spirit was at some measure being poured forth some 33 years before Christ was crucified, before the church was established at Pentecost. And, and I know this, this would really trouble some. Some people would really have a problem with this, especially in some seminaries. You know, you'd hear protesting, oh no, no, we've, we've got it figured out that the Holy Spirit is given on the day of Pentecost. That's when the church is born. We can't vary from that. To set, suggest anything else in some circles, just be complete anathema. They protest. I don't know how else to explain Zacharias and his vision, an older man, Mary, a young woman, having her vision. Next week, Elizabeth is going to be filled with the Spirit and she's going to prophesy. The child's going to leap in her womb. Later on, Zacharias is going to prophesy. We're going to see in chapter 2 that revelations come to both Simeon and, and Anna in the temple and it says that she prophesies. Look at all the different work of the Spirit that's going on. We need to give the Spirit credit where the Spirit is is due credit. And we're going to see that in contrast to the Old Testament, that the Holy Spirit is poured out and prophecy arrives in various forms, in in numerous ways through a diversity of people, young, old, male, female, even previous to Pentecost. And the reason I I, I go here is because we're going to see quite a few things in the next few weeks, and a problem comes when well-intended people like us very well-intended people, uh, we want to 
you know, put our theology in perfect little boxes and tie ribbons upon them and, and label them with, with type labels and perfectly categorize and have our explanations perfectly compartmentalized so that we feel like we've got it all figured out. Well, we've got it all figured out. I've, I've got a good theology. It's figured out. We don't have everything figured out. Thankfully, because we don't have it all figured out, the scriptures themselves put certain limitations on what can go on today. Revelation, the end of Revelation, you shall not add prophecy to this book. There are limiting factors to what can can happen now because we have more revelation than they had at this time. Colossians 2.18 reveals angelic visions, no longer authority for the church. So there are limitations put on it. But we also will observe in the coming chapters that when the Holy Spirit moves, He isn't perfectly predictable. He's not. So if, it, if what we see doesn't fit neatly and perfectly in our box, that's all right. You know, God never instructed us to take Him and put Him in a box. And there are certain incidents in Luke under, under this period of the Old Testament, we'd call it a dispensation of law previous to Pentecost, that would seem to fit more neatly after Pentecost, after the Spirit is indwelling people, But everything just doesn't always fit so neatly. I believe this is why, and, and I don't speak for him here, and I haven't read in him in depth on his explanation of this. John MacArthur refers to himself, if I'm not mistaken, as a leaky dispensationalist. There are cer- surely certain things that must be categorized as the church age. There are certainly uh, specific things that, that must exclusively be characterized as Israel and the Mosaic Covenant. But there are a lot of things that leak across the boundaries of the eras, the dispensations. There, there, some of these are the, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. They, they leak across our explanations. Uh, another one would be uh, Christ going to some particular Gentiles, Right? Even before the day of Pentecost, there are several things that don't exactly fit our theology perfectly. Yet the work of the Holy Spirit is what the church thrives on. If we don't expect the Holy Spirit to empower, to work in ways that we can't always explain, we aren't going to be able to build His church. It's it's not up to us to understand everything. It's up to us to preach the gospel and anticipate that the Holy Spirit has a ministry. A ministry of conviction, a ministry of regeneration, a ministry of purification in our lives. Because Peter preached, in those days I will pour forth my spirit and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We desperately need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, folks. We desperately need people to be convicted of their sins. We're not seeing a lot of that. We desperately need to give the Spirit His due. And we desperately need to preach Christ and and ask the Holy Spirit to work. So uh, the first example of this Spirit-filled life that I want to leave you with is that when God revealed Himself to Mary when he explained himself to her, 
Mary, being the obedient one, responded with joy. She responded with joy uh, to what he revealed to her. Thankfully today, we've got a whole lot more in Scripture than she ever had. A whole lot more than the prophets of the Old Testament had regarding God and his nature and how he works. And we, we in our lives need to obey as we hear God's word. So this is uh, number one, uh, our number one question looking at Mary today. And then next week we're going to look at Elizabeth. As she's filled with the spirit, the baby leaps uh, for joy and then she prophesies. But today is, as Mary responded, how will we, as we go through these passages in Scripture, how are we going to respond? Are we going to be open to responding to what God shows us? And that's what we need to be prepared to answer. Let's pray.